Okay. Do you ever feel like this? And for those of you listening, there's a, there's a cartoon up on the screen that says, Mom speaking to her son, you're making it difficult for me to be the parent I always imagined I would be. Ever had that thought? Something like that. I want to start tonight with what I hope will be an encouragement to especially young parents, though you can apply this principle to any stage of parenting. We've made the point over and over again that parenting is hard work, and it is. The joys of parenting are almost indescribable. Um, But in the crucible of raising small children, whether you have one or whether you have how many? Thirteen. Whether you have one or whether you have thirteen, sometimes those joys get overshadowed by the pressure of just getting through the day. Not all days are that way. They're really sweet days. Sometimes they're restful days. They're happy days. They're simply delightful days. But it might be just the way we're wired. What seems to dominate the horizon in our minds are the tough days, the hard days, the days where you just sit down and put your head in your hands and you wonder, if I, am I going to make it through this day? The days that wear you out, the days that make you question your fitness to parent. Anybody ever question their fitness to parent? Raise your hands. Come on. Yeah. Me too. Let me offer perspective on those days because it's, it's really easy to let those days wear you down and suck the joy out of parenting. I'm not going to tell you there's a way to avoid those days. There's not a way to run from them. Well, there are ways to run from them, but they're all sinful. There, there are not ways to avoid those days. They come. Sometimes they come frequently. Sometimes they come in rapid succession. They're part of parenting. But what I want to tell you is that there's a way to view those days. There's a way to think about them that gives you hope and that gives you you encouragement. It's actually pretty simple. Parenting is one of the most God-honoring, kingdom-oriented, gospel-focused endeavors of all God's redemptive activities. We need to think about parenting like that. You're not preaching to a congregation of thousands. You're not heading up some worldwide mission organization. You're not laying your life down on some remote, impossible mission field. You're not denying yourself for the sake of an earthquake-devastated orphanage in Haiti. But you're laying your life down every single day. And you're taking up your cross and following Christ every single day day for the sake of your precious children and their souls. You are pouring yourself into the molding and shaping of their character. You're laboring to help them see their sins so that you can point them over and over again to the Savior as their only hope. You're living out the realities of redemption in front of their eyes every day. You're showing them what it means to follow Christ every day. You're denying yourself every day for the sake of your children. You're showing them what it means to bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're showing them what repentance looks like because you have to do it. You're showing them what faith, sometimes tiny, mustard seed faith looks like. You're, you're showing them what it is to own up to sin. You're showing them what it means to fall down and get back up a thousand times in a day. What it means to do the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing. You're showing them the kind of grace there is in the gospel. And you're showing them all of that in the daily routine of diapers and squabbles and messies and owies and conflicts and selfishness. 
You're not doing any of that perfectly. But you're doing it authentically, genuinely, flaws and all. And if that means that your days don't go as planned, how many of your days go as planned? Zero to minus ten. If your days don't go as planned, or some things get bumped down a few priority levels, some things don't get until very late, and some things just don't get done, then it does not mean that you failed as a mom or a dad. You've been laying your life down and taking up your cross and denying yourself for the sake of the kingdom, particularly as it bears upon your children. And that happens in the midst of those awful, horrible, terrible, no good, very bad days that we all have. John Piper says that practically all parents enter parenting feeling inadequate. True? Oh, pregnant one? We enter parenting feeling inadequate and we leave parenting feeling guilty. There's so much more we could have done. But as long as we are fallen parents in a fallen world with fallen children, it's not going to be perfect. That's why the gospel gives us so much hope. And that's why we've got to view those hard days that all too often dominate the horizon. And sometimes that's all we see. We've got to learn to look at those hard days through the lens of the gospel and what it is God has called us to do as parents. No, you're not, you're not going to be as famous as um, Hudson Taylor. Anybody know who Hudson Taylor was? Missionary to China. You may never be as famous as John Piper. But you've got children whose souls are precious. And you're laying your life down every single day for those children. And we've got to learn to see those hard days in that light. And that will give us some hope and some perspective. Does God call you to be faithful, diligent, Christ-like parents? Of course He does. Does His rescue of your children hang on your parenting? That's a very important question. Piper says, Piper says, the bottom line is God. There's grace for every need. The bottom line is not our parenting. The bottom line for our kids is God. Does God call you to faithful parent? Yes. Does his rescue of your children hang on your parenting? Answer that question. Does, does God's rescue of your children hang on your parenting? Yes or no? no. Right answer. It hangs on God. It hangs on God. And that gives us all the hope in the world. On those days when it's just, I can't do this anymore. Okay? So on those days, try to keep that, that gospel perspective. Last time, we began to look at the role of parents, who we are, what we do. We're parents, evangelists, intercessors, teachers. And we saw a lot of characteristics of our teaching. It's earnest, appropriately reasoned, attractive, persistent, unified, observant, and opportunistic. We take advantage of things that God puts in our way all the time to mold and shape our kids. Now, I want to, I want to pursue uh, our teaching tonight 
and talk about how our teaching must be aimed at the heart of our children. Our teaching must be all of these other things, but it's got to be aimed at the heart of our children. And this is where uh, the books by <coughs> Ted and Paul Tripp, uh, Ginger Hubbard, uh, are so helpful. Shepherding a Child's Heart, Instructing a Child's Heart, Don't Maybe Count Three, and uh, Gospel Principles for Parenting by Paul Tripp. That's his, um, this one is his most recent book. Um, i got to use this for just a minute. Um, so I, I highly recommend those books. What I want to do is give you just a, just a quick distillation of the principles in those books about getting to the heart of our children. Consider what Proverbs says about the heart. It's, it's slam cram full of statements about the heart. Incline your heart to understanding. For wisdom will enter your heart. Let your heart keep my commandments. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep them in the midst of your heart. And heart is the core of your being. Okay? It's, the core. it's, not, it's not, obviously, the thing that pumps blood. It's the core of who you are. Everything about us is heart-driven. Okay? So, the wise man of the book of Proverbs does not say, just store these things up in your brain. Incline your heart, the core of your being, to understanding. Keep these things in the midst of your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Bind the things I'm telling you. Continue on your heart. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Give me your heart, my son. And over and over and over again, the book of Proverbs calls us to watch over our hearts. Jesus underscores this in the New Testament. These are familiar words. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and pulling your sister's hair. Where does that stuff come from? Everything is heart-driven. Friday, the abundance of heart, his mouth speaks. Where did your little girl learn to say all those nasty things? You didn't give her a lesson, did you? Sweetheart, let me, te- let me teach you. I'm going to give you a list of all the ugly things you can say to your brother. Do you guys ever do that? Have you done that with your twins? Are you sitting now with that baby in your womb and you're holding your hands in there and say, okay, boy or girl, boy, my son, my son, let me tell you. I know, I know you're still in the womb, but let me tell you how you can be disobedient to mommy and daddy. You're not sitting around doing that. They've got it by nature. We'll come to that in a little bit. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. It's, it's from within. If all we ever do is try to control the outward behavior of our children, we will most likely do a very good job of creating little hypocritical Pharisees. To whom Jesus said these words, clean the inside of the cup so the outside may be clean also. If all the doctor ever did was treat the outward symptom, but never tried to get to the root 
cause, you'd say he's a pretty lousy doctor. But that's often what we do as parents. Let's just get this behavior under control. Somebody's going to get hurt. We're going to be embarrassed. We're going to be embarrassed. Their behavior is making us look bad. Let's just have some peace. We've got to get them to stop fighting over their toys. The point is not just that we don't want our children to be little Pharisees because all we've done is control their outward behavior. Sometimes what drives that is that we as parents have to get past the temptation to be Pharisees ourselves when we're more concerned with our reputation in the behavior of our children. With our children make us look, with how our, our image is tarnished by their behavior. Have you ever been embarrassed by your children? <laughs> yes. Will you be embarrassed again by your children? Yes. But is that what should drive the way we deal with our kids? That I don't want, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to look bad. No, I want to get to that kid's heart. Because that's what drives all of their behavior. So, your children, our children, need us to do more than just announce failure, instill guilt, attach a consequence, and then walk away. That's easy to do. Announce failure? I can't believe you just did that. What a miserable failure you are. People say that to their children. And we make them feel guilty. We attach a consequence. Go to your room and you're not coming out for three days. Attach a consequence. And then walk away and we think our job is done. So what does this sort of teaching discipline look like when we're just after their behavior and we're not going after their hearts? This is uh, an illustration from uh, Ted Tripp, page 148, called the shut-up jar. Anybody here ever had a shut-up jar? <laughs> you know what it is? We weren't allowed to say shut-up. Okay. One dad told me he had tried to use a shut-up jar at his home. What's a shut-up jar? I got so tired of hearing my children say shut-up, I told them whenever they say shut-up, they have to put a dollar in the jar. He said, what happened? In two weeks, we had $100. $100. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I know. My wife and I were putting some money in, too. What happened then? A couple of weeks passed, and no one was saying shut-up anymore, so I figured we'd learned our lesson. Friday night came along, and I took the family out for pizza, a movie, and ice cream. We blew most of $100. What happened then? You wouldn't believe it. Within two days, they were saying, shut up again. What'd they do? All they did was manipulate their outward behavior. And once the, once the motive was gone, had the heart changed? No. They were still saying, shut up. Because the jar was gone. The money was spent. We got it. No. That's behaviorism. If that's all we do. Now, there's certainly a place for praise and reward. There's, there's a place for our children to feel guilty, certainly. And there's a need to control their behavior to stop the fight. Or, or to take the toy away. Or to take away privilege or require some sort of restitution. Of course there is. 
But if we never or seldom talk to them about where all that rot came from, about why they behave the way they do, about what they desperately need for their behavior to change, then we've missed the heart of it all. Okay, so that's what it looks like when all we do is address the outward behavior. This is a shut-up jar. What does it look like when we do after the heart? Let's say the kids are fighting over some toy. This is not rocket science, okay? You'll, you'll get this. Let's say the kids are fighting over some toy. Your children never do that. I get it, but it's just uh, this is just an illustration, okay? Um, what's the question we most often ask first? Who had it first? Who had it first? Did he have it first? Did he say you could have it? No. Did you take it away from him? Give it back. Give it back. Sometimes. That misses the heart. That's um, We're aiming at the tight, but we're, we're, we're missing. If all we said, who had it first? Give it back. What's the heart issue here? When, when this is what's happening, what's the heart issue? It's not complicated. Greed, selfishness, selfishness, and it comes from within, and it's probably with both kids, the one who had it first and the one who wanted it. The one who wanted it is being selfish, the one who had it first is, is selfishness. That's a heart issue. It, it comes from within, and it tells me something about you, my son, my daughter. It tells me that you love yourself way more than you love God or your brother or your sister. And that selfishness is so deeply rooted way down inside you that it takes the power of God to overcome it. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you what God did so that your selfishness could be fixed. And the door is wide open to explain the gospel to your children. Because you've gone after the heart. That takes time. I'll say something about that in a second, okay? Um, let me give you another example. You have a son who's mercilessly teasing his sister. Your kids never do that. His words begin to sting. He doesn't stop, and soon she's in tears. He still doesn't stop, and his words begin to hurt even more as he makes fun of her. Now for being a crybaby, so she grabs his favorite video game, stomps it to pieces on the floor, runs to her room, slams the door, and... The silence is suddenly deafening, except for her sobbing in her bedroom. What do you do? If I ever hear you talk like that again to your sister, you'll be grounded for a week. Now go up there and apologize. Don't ever let me hear you do that again. Took care of that. No, no, no. That is not the end of the discussion. That shouldn't even be the beginning of the discussion. What do we do? What's the heart issue with your son that makes him mercilessly tease his sister? Well, it could be anger over something she did or said to him, boiling up from inside. It could be envy or jealousy over something she received that he didn't, so he feels like he's got to take her down. It could have been just plain meanness. Not that any of you would have mean children. Mine could be mean. <laughs> it could be just plain meanness. 
And his sinful heart supplied his sinful tongue with plenty of ammo to take his sister down. So what you have is a prime opportunity to help your son understand the connection between his heart and his mouth. Because the connection is very real. What do we read from Proverbs? Out of, the, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. You've got a prime opportunity to teach your son the connection between heart and tongue. And while he's still responsible for every word that comes out of his mouth, it's his heart that's the problem. And that's what needs to be changed. And yes, 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 punishment is coming for the way you treated your sister. And yes, you must apologize to her. But your greatest need, my son, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that only God can give and the cleansing that only his blood can provide for your heart. And, and, and again, the door is open for you to explain the gospel to your son. Can you do that too often? No. If you do it 15 times in a day, is that too often? No. No. They'll pretty soon get the idea that the gospel is pretty critical to everything. So you take every opportunity you can. So are we done? We've talked to son about his heart. No, we've still got the matter of the smash video game and the slam door. What's the problem with little sister? Revenge? And lack of self-control. She's taking judgment into her own hands. Video game, boom. Ruin that thing. I taught you a lesson, buddy. Don't you ever do that to me again. We've not addressed the heart behind sister's behavior and how much she needs a new heart that only God can give her. A heart that leaves matters of judgment to God. And yes, she needs to buy him a new video game. But we've got to get to the heart of the issue with her. So... Uh, just a couple of th those are pretty simple illustrations, but you see the point. Take advantage of every one of those opportunities to explain there's a connection between what you just did and this thing that drives you. There's a connection between the rot that just poured out of your mouth towards your brother or sister and this heart that's driving all of that. And what needs to change are your words, yes, but how's that going to change? This needs to change. And only God can do that. Just a couple other quick comments here. What do, you, what do you say when your child immediately tries to shift the blame? She made me do it. You ever heard that one? No, she didn't. She didn't make you do anything. She just gave you the opportunity to show what was really down in your heart all along. Out of the heart come. She didn't make you do it. She didn't hold a gun to your head and say, say ugly things to me. She just gave you the opportunity to show what was really there. Your parenting, this is from Paul Tripp, you're parenting a little person who does not see himself or his sin accurately. What is wrong doesn't look so wrong to them. It's not clear who they are isn't apparent to them. They're blind. What by God's grace is clear to you is not clear to them. What seems obvious to you is not obvious to them. And the response that we think should be natural is counterintuitive to them. So instead of blasting away at them for their behavior, we need to labor patiently and lovingly to help them see what the problem is. And it's their own heart. 
And we do that without forsaking discipline and rules. There's still discipline coming down the pike, son. And no, we're not changing the rules in our household. But it's the heart. we got to answer the heart. So, uh, just a couple of things. You can't have these heart discussions with your infant or sometimes even your young toddlers. They don't have the capacity to understand um, reasoned arguments and hard attitudes. So at that stage, you pretty much need to control their behavior. They do understand pain, don't they? And that little pop on the leg, if it comes consistently enough, every time little Johnny reaches up and rips the glasses off your face, pop, no. Almost lost my hearing aid on that one. Pop. No. Pop. No. Pop. No. Oh. Oh. Wonder of wonders. Connection between and pop begins to form in their little minds. And so, yes, at that younger stage, we, we need to control their behavior and they understand the connection between pain and no. They catch on pretty early, but that doesn't mean that we can't begin to talk to our two-year-olds about being selfish or about telling the truth or about loving your brother or sister, about being angry. We've got to help them build the vocabulary of heart issues so that as they mature in their understanding, they've got pegs to hang things on when we give them more detailed explanations of things. So don't, don't shy back from using heart kinds of language with your little toddlers. Get them used to that kind of language. And the day will come when that will make sense to them. Okay, this also doesn't mean that <clears throat> every single instance of wrong behavior calls for a 20-minute discussion of hard issues. That's impossible. Right? Nobody would be here tonight. <laughs> if, if you Today, if you had had that 20- or 30-minute discussion of hard issues with all of your children today. Sometimes you must simply correct their behavior and move on. But hear me, if the discussion of hard issues becomes the exception rather than the general pattern, we're in danger of missing the boat. It's a good thing to have heart issue discussions when there's not a problem, when there's been no rule broken. Have those when there's nothing going on. The discussion is calm. There's not the pressure of having to resolve some conflict. And you're laying groundwork. You're laying a foundation upon which you can build much more easily in those pressured moments when behavior has gone wrong and must be addressed. And it's also true that a great many behavioral issues can be reduced to a few basic principles. So many of our kids' conflicts can be traced back to things like pride and the need for humility, anger and the need for self-control, fear of man and the need for the fear of God. The fear of man shows itself when you cave into pre your peer pressure. Okay, and man, how many of our kids cave to peer pressure? Love of self and the need for loving others, greed and the need for contentment, laziness and the need for diligence, Revenge and the need for trusting God. Um, revenge is a, is, a, is a strong word. It's getting back, getting even, as opposed to the need for trusting God. So many of our children's issues can be, yeah, they're in this list right here. 
So you don't have to you don't have to have a PhD in psychology to understand the stuff of heart issues. It's really pretty basic. And it's what drives the behavior of our children. We just need to learn well, yes, we have to control outward behavior and we have to have discipline and rules, and we'll talk about that on down the road in the next couple of weeks. We've we've got to develop the discipline as parents of getting past the outward behavior and talk to them about where'd that come from? Where'd that come came out of your hearts? And your heart is who you are deep down inside. And we'll talk about Can I ask you a quick question? No. Go ahead. Absolutely. And I guess we, we have this law gospel distinction, like as if I gotta pick one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's both and all the time. And I, I I don't know if it's in this lecture or it's in one to come. I'll I'll find it here in a few minutes if it's in this one, but there's there's an absolute place for trying to mold and shape the character and the behavior of our children before they're converted. When their heart is still at enmity with God. Are the Ten Commandments just for Christians? They're for everybody. Bernie, quit lying. Trump, quit lying. Okay? They're for everybody. The kind of behavior the Bible calls us to is is good for my children, whether they have a heart that loves and trusts Jesus or not. And so, yeah, we do everything we can do to mold and shape that behavior in them. What's the, what's the, is that, is that yeah, answering so what's your... Can that help prepare them? To like Absolutely. See their sin more, prepare them? Absolutely, yes. Without, I guess the, the fear is, is that you don't want to create little Pharisees. No. That are outwardly looking good, but inwardly whitewashed too. <laughs> yeah, so what you do is you couple that molding and shaping with heart discussions all the time. And you make that, make sure they understand, my son, my daughter, this is the kind of behavior God expects of you, but that will never get you to heaven. That behavior will never make you right with God. Only Jesus can do that. And there's a real simple, I'll give it to you here, I, I think it's in this lecture, a real simple way to present the gospel to your kids that I think they'll understand. Um, so yeah, I mean, what's the alternative? You're gonna you're gonna let them be mean. You're gonna let them be selfish. You're gonna let them be liars. You're gonna let them be cruel. You're gonna let them be heartless. No, what does that what does that build up? Hardness of heart. So yeah, you want to do everything you can do to mold and shape the right kind of character and behavior in them, even though they may not be converted. And yes, I think that prepares the way for them. I think it's a... Are you guys familiar with the distinction between common grace and special grace? Common grace is that is that kindness of God to the entire planet 
where there is so often restraint of sin. And, and why was I not as bad as I could be before I was converted? And I could have been a whole lot worse. I was pretty rotten, but I could have been a whole lot worse. Because God's common grace was keeping me from developing habits of character and living that would have ruined the rest of my life. So, yeah, exercise all the common grace you can as a parent, and God is exercising that common grace until special grace comes by the kindness of God and our kids are converted. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and I apologize for not taking time for questions. I feel like I'm on a fast track to, I gotta get there. I gotta, we gotta get through this stuff and we only got three more weeks after tonight. So please, uh, if you got something burning, stick your hand up and I'll stop. We'll talk about it, okay? Um, so all these hard discussions only take us back to the gospel. God's the only way to change hearts. And so over and over again, we point, um, our kids to the gospel. Oh, you know, uh, that thing about that's real simple explanation of the gospel is the next thing I got here. Um, talk to your kids. Some of you heard me say this before. I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but I'm going to tell you again. Johnny, Susie. My wife's not here tonight, so I can say Johnny and Susie. The same names I always use. She says, you got to come up with different names. Johnny, did Jesus ever roll his eyes at his mother? Did he? No. Did Jesus ever stomp his foot when he was a, a teenager and say, I am not taking that garbage out one more time. Take it out yourself, lady. Jesus ever say that? Ever do that? No. And you can go through a whole list of all kinds of stuff that Jesus never did. Did he ever disobey his earthly father? Did he ever Was he ever selfish with the other kids in the neighborhood? Why? Why? Why did Jesus never roll his eyes at his mother? And the answer you always give them is because he knew you would. He knew you would. So God's law either means something or it doesn't. God just didn't hang the Ten Commandments out there. And the summary of the two, love God with my heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor yourself. He didn't just hang them out there to be a pretty sign on a wall. He meant them to be kept. And, and we haven't kept them. So what's going to happen? Oh, he'll just look the other way. Uh, no, he won't. He means his law to be kept. So Jesus kept it because he knew I wouldn't. And somebody had to keep it for me because I couldn't. And so you, so you give some examples like that. Did Jesus ever do this? this, this? Why? Because he knew you would. And somebody had to keep it for you. And Jesus, that's what Jesus did in his perfect righteousness. And then, uh, wonder of wonders. Do you know what Jesus did? He did the most remarkable thing of all. He took all your law breaking. He took all your sin. And he took it and said, it's mine. What? Wait, 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 wait. Jesus never sinned. No, he never sinned. He kept it for you because he knew you couldn't. So he kept it for you. And then he does the absolutely unthinkable. He takes your sin upon himself and he says, it's mine. 
All Isaiah 53, all our iniquities were laid on him. He took them. He, he gives me all his righteousness as if it were my very own. And he takes all my sins as if they were his very own. And there's that magnificent switch. Where I get his righteousness, he gets my sin. And he dies instead of me. And I get forgiveness. And eternal life. And you can explain that in ways that your kids really understand. They, they, they can understand the idea of transfer. And so over and over and over and over again you come back to that. And, and, and beg God that that will take root in their hearts. That's what we want for our children. We want their hearts. We want them trusting Jesus alone to save them from their sins. And we have the unspeakable privilege as parents of pointing, to the sa- pointing them to the Savior over and over and over and over and over again in the course of our parenting. Okay? Any, any questions real fast? Good, we're going to move on. The nature of our children. This should be interesting. Who are they? I want you to finish that sentence. They are. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're wrong. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. But we, we're coming to that later. Before we get to that point, we've got to understand that they're individual, unique individual image bearers of God. That's what our kids are. The Bible is clear that in distinction from all the other living things God created, man and man alone uniquely bears the image of God. That's plain from Genesis 1. It's also plain that after the fall into sin, that image was not destroyed. It was marred. But it's still there. James makes that clear. With, it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. That's long after the fall took place. We still bear the image of God. So what does that mean? That our children are made in the image of God. It means they have a God consciousness to which we may and must appeal. It means that they have personality and imagination and creativity and the capacity to think, reason, feel, choose, act, and communicate, dream, and create. Why, why do our children dream? Why do you dream? Excuse me, because you're made in the image of God. And God's the creator. And we have the capacity to create. Has sin affected that? Of course it has. But we still have creativity. It means that our children have personality. Um, and imagination and, and the capacity to think, reason, feel. It means they have moral consciousness. The capacity to know right from wrong. It means they have a capacity to know God. It means they're real persons. It means they were made for worship. They were made with a huge capacity for awe and wonder. They will worship someone or something. Look how our children love heroes or heroines. They think they're really cool. Look how they're amazed early on by the simplest things. Look at how often their eyes get wide. Look at how they love and worship themselves. Look at how they love to play God. 
We think our kids love to play house. They probably do. But they love to play God. Which just means that they love to rule the roost and they love to call the shots and they love to have it their way. Don't they? That's, they're, they're worshiping themselves. So what we have to do is to keep pointing them to the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. They have the capacity for that because they're made in the image of God. So what does all that mean? It means that our children are not the result of random evolutionary chaos. It means they're not animals who live by instinct and should be trained like animals to simply jump through so many hoops every time we crack the whip. It means that meaning and worth and value and a reason and purpose for existence. It means that their reason and purpose for being is to glorify God whose image they bear. They were made to reflect him. And yes, sin has stained all of that, but it has not erased the image of God. It has not changed the ultimate purpose for which we were made. It means that our kids are not junk. And they're not objects to be abused, beaten, exploited, ignored, mistreated, neglected, discarded, or aborted. And that has major implications for the way we, we, we don't do that. We don't do all that awful stuff. It has major implications that our children made in the image of God. It has major implications for the way we speak to our children, the way we discipline them, the way we teach them, how we listen to them, how we raise them. They are each single one of them unique individual image bearers of God. When, when you're really cranked, and we all get that way, when you're really cranked, and you're about to let your son or your daughter have it, both barrels, blam, 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 do you stop and think that I'm talking to an image bearer of God? What is it that makes them valuable and important? What is it that makes them worth something? What is it that gives our children worth and value and dignity? It is not how much cool stuff they have or that we buy them. It is not how pretty your face is. It is not how strong his muscles are. It is not who their friends are. It is not whether they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend by the time they're 12 It is not how, or 10. It is not how good their grades are. It's not how popular they are. It's not whether she or he or she is a good athlete. What makes them worth something invaluable is not whether they're a good singer, a good actor in the school play, um, whether or not they make the honor roll, whether they take dance lessons, play soccer, take horseback riding lessons, do gymnastics, and play the piano. It's not whether they succeed. It's not. It's not how many gifted and talented programs they're in. It's not how many scholarships they will earn. It is not whether they have all their parts and all the right chromosomes when they come out of the womb. It is not that that makes them valuable. Root that down in the core of your being. What makes them valuable is that God made them in his own image. 
And they're going to learn that from us. By how we treat them, by how we speak to them, by the way we love them, by how we discipline them, and by what we say to them. Our children will learn it by how we react when they lose or fail. They'll learn it by what we say when they succeed. They'll learn it by what they see is important to us. And we need to make sure as parents that they understand that that is the foundation. Being made in the image of God is the foundation for a proper self-image. Understanding who they are, who made them, and why they were made. They ain't going to get that on their own. They ain't going to get it from the world around them. They've got to get it from us and from this book. I've, re- I've, got, to t- I've got to tell you the story. I'm, I'm going to get behind. I've got to tell you the story. I used to go to a nursing home in South Carolina where we lived for 20 years. And uh, I'd go to a nursing home every Tuesday night in Spartanburg, South Carolina and, and preach to the residents. And then I'd go room to room and visit with some people. And there was a kid there. His name was Larry Coffey. Anybody heard me tell this story before? His name was Larry Coffey. Yeah, he was he was um, in his early twenties, I think, by the time I met him. Uh, tall, strapping kid, beautiful, full head of red hair, which made me jealous, of course. But um, although I did have more hair then than I do now, uh, he loved hunting, and he loved hot rods. And um, when I met him, he was curled up in a fetal position. On his side, drool constantly dripping out of his mouth. Because he'd been in a car accident and had pretty severe brain damage. His mom told me the story. And so I'd go in and see Larry and I'd talk to him. And, and there was, uh, up on the wall of the nursing home, there was a TV on constantly. And I walked in there one night. And the the the... the assistants and the caregivers would come in and they'd, they'd do his arm, they'd stretch his arms out like this so his muscles wouldn't completely atrophy and they'd stretch his legs and they'd roll him over to keep him in bed stores and they, they kept a towel tucked right under here so to catch all the drool and it was sad. He couldn't speak. He couldn't move. I mean, just the, just the most minimum movements. And I watched him one night and the TV's on and, and I looked at him. Hey, Larry, how you doing? And his eyes are glued to the TV. Just glued. So I looked at the TV. And there's some documentary on I I couldn't tell you to save my life who it was about now, but this, this has been probably 40 years ago. Um, I, there's a documentary on about a, a singer who had been in a terrible, terrible car accident. And... Um, Broken limbs, and they didn't know if he was going to recover, and he actually started to get better. And he rolled out on the stage in front of his adoring fans in a wheelchair, and he got braces on and all sorts of stuff, and he gets up out of the wheelchair, and his legs and arms are just shaking, but he stands up. And the crowd goes wild, because he's going to get better. 
And I looked over at Larry and back at the TV. And I looked back at Larry. And tears are rolled down his face. Why? Because he knew that he would never get up out of that bed. And that guy did. Boy, did I change the way I talked to that guy after that. And I told him over and over and over again, Larry, you have worth and value and dignity. I don't understand why God let this happen to you while you're in this bed, but that has not destroyed you. You still have worth and value and dignity as a creature made in the image of God. And you have the capacity to understand what you just saw on that TV. You got the capacity to understand the gospel, and here it is. And I don't know if I'll ever see Larry in heaven or not. But that totally changed the way I thought about what makes somebody worth something. He was worth every bit as much as a human being as I was. And he couldn't move a muscle. But he understood what he saw on that TV. Our kids need to understand that they're made in the image of God. And that don't don't buy all this self-esteem garbage. Our kids have all the self-esteem they need when they come out of the womb. But they need, they desperately need a good self-image. They need a biblical self-image, which will help our girls understand the true place of beauty and modesty, which will help our boys understand the real place of being a gentleman and the real place for strength and how God made you to be a protector and a provider. Teach your kids Self-image that's rooted in your made in the image of God. Okay, I got that's way too long, and uh, let me try to cover one more thing here. Our kids are pliable, moldable creatures. God didn't make them like rocks, nor did He send them, much to our consternation, with all the software preloaded. Right? He made the moldable, pliable, impressionable creatures with a tremendous capacity for the intake of information. Why are there so many appeals in Proverbs to the Son to listen, to learn, to receive sayings, to hear instruction, to keep commandments, to incline your ear, to listen to your beat? Why are all those statements there in Proverbs if our kids are not moldable and pliable? Of course they are. Why are we to caution our children about their friends? Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 22. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself because they're impressionable and moldable and pliable. This has major implications for the way we deal with our children. You ever caught yourself almost in mid-sentence as you're about to let your child have it for the way they're speaking to their brother or sister when you suddenly realize that they sound just like you? What'd you do? Your hands were on the clay. You were making an impression on them. 
Ted Tripp gives this illustration. A kindergarten teacher was having trouble keeping Johnny in the classroom. Every time he got frustrated, he gave up and walked out of the room. So she called the parents in for a conference, and the conference was not going particularly well. And, and she could tell Dad was getting a little bit frustrated. And you know what Dad did? Got up and walked out of the room. Where did Johnny get that? He'd seen his dad do it a hundred times. This, this hits us right between the eyes. Think through your lives, how you react, how you spend your time, how you talk. We're constantly pushing and pulling on the clay. They are constantly under the impress of our example and our words because they're moldable, pliable creatures. And that is true whether we're consciously molding them or whether we're passively, unconsciously molding them. We are making an impress on our children all the time. We're never off the clock. That's huge. The wheel is always spinning. And the older they get apart from special saving grace, the harder and drier the clay becomes. But God can soften the hardest heart, doesn't he promise in Ezekiel 36, to take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh? There's no heart that's too hard for God to reach. So our children are moldable, pliable creatures. That had to have a huge influence on how we deal with our children. Number three. Our children come from the womb as either boys or girls, period. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's as plain as the nose on your face. Is it too crude to say it's the plain as the body parts on your body? They're either boys or girls. End of discussion. Our children also come from the womb as sinners. We finally got there, didn't we? They come from the womb as sinners. Um, we'll pick up there next time. Okay. Any 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 last questions? Thank you all. Thanks for coming.